It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by DraftKings. One week fantasy football at DraftKings means every moment could take you closer to a life-changing payday. Play when you want and pick a new team every time. Use the code HANGUP to play free for a shot at a million bucks in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Only at DraftKings.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 14th, 2015. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the U.S. Open, where Serena Williams lost her bid to win the calendar year Grand Slam, and Roger Federer lost to Novak Djokovic in his attempt to win an 18th major title. We'll also discuss whether the NFL has a quarterback crisis with players coming into the league from college unprepared for the rigors of the professional game. And we'll look at how European soccer clubs have responded to the Syrian refugee crisis, which, unlike the crisis mentioned in the uh, previous sentence, is an actual crisis, and how their approach differs from the way American franchises see the world. Just like I was last week, I'm in New York, having watched a crap ton of tennis. And lucky for me and everyone else, my friend, colleague, and muse, Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca, is back from vacation. And while we wait to see if he's been Wally pipped by his own producer, I want you to know that on this show, you will always be a pre-disease Lou Gehrig. Hello, Mike. I would have been Lou Gehrig by the producer. Now, now shit ton, crap ton. Is that like the nautical mile? It's a little bit different than the regular ton? Or when it comes to tennis, do they use it like the weird 15-30-40 scoring system? Yeah, I was like several uh, leagues up in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Yeah. It was about a furlong away. Yeah. From the players, but it was still a marvelous. I can't, I can't experience. fathom that. So, so Mike was on vacation in Istanbul before we quote unquote started the show. Mike sang an Istanbul song for me and Stefan. So, not the Istanbul song you might think. Yeah, so we'll we'll put that in right now, Zach. Let's play that clip. I think. I mean, maybe I take great cities like London, Paris, and Rome for granted. That Man. sounded like a opening line for a uh, this American song life. about no a song. In a musical about Istanbul. Maybe I take the cities forever. Paris is fine and Rome is sublime. London has charms, but there is something that disarms me about Istanbul. So we ate in this restaurant, and when we were done, the waiter said, Hey, guys, come on down. Showed me around the corner, and there it was, a 600-year-old something that was used to store fans. (laughs) It was like, oh, yeah, the uh, owners of this restaurant just found this, and we're excavating it. It's it's 600 years old. You want to see? Sure. We want Walked around these catacombs. There's like a storage area. I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's what happens in Istanbul. <laughs> All right, Istanbul, the musical, Mike Pesca. Hey, Stefan, you didn't get introduced first this time, but I still love you. Because I'm all by myself. You Here are. In, well, I'll just introduce myself. <laughs> Here in Washington, in an empty studio, an empty room, with no artwork on the walls. 
<laughs> no Mike Volo. Sadness fills the egg crate. Yes. Liners. It is a 600-year-old emptiness inside of you. <laughs> to the wall. You're so sad and alone that the books you've written have no longer exist. They don't exist. They're not promotable. Nope. The past has changed. But you know what does exist, Stefan? What? The bonus segment for Slate Plus members. We're going to talk about my books? <laughs> not this week. There is a connection to your books. Because on the bonus segment, we're going to talk about sort of my vacation or being away on vacation and in a sports dead zone. That's right. And while I was mm-hmm. away on vacation, I was mostly at a wedding. And there I met a guy who said, oh, Stefan Fatsis. I loved his book about minor league baseball. Of all the books to praise, Oh, Stephen. stop. He did not. You made that up. Phil. Phil Hochberg. Do you know Phil? Phil? love you, Phil, if you're listening. <laughs> so we are going to talk about sports blackouts, periods in our life, or just days or weeks where we haven't paid much attention to sports at all. How do we cope? What do we do? Um, to hear that bonus segment and others like it on this show and other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangout plus. You can get a free two-week trial of Slate Plus at that same URL, slate.com slash hangout plus. I also want to put in a word for a new uh, podcast from Slate and Panoply. It's about college admissions. It's called Getting In. Stefan, it's never too early. Your, your daughter. <laughs> oh, my daughter. I thought you meant me. It's <laughs> be a little late. You could redo this again. I mean, Penn's it's never a good too early school, or too but it's late. No Brown. Um, <laughs> so this is a real time podcast. It follows four high school seniors through uh, the process of applying to college and the anxiety producing steps along the way. They get advice from experts, including former admissions officials from Princeton and UVA. Not Penn. Maybe we'll we'll work on that. Mm-hmm. As well as from experienced high school guidance counselors. There'll be call-in questions. Um, you can find it. It's called Getting In. It's uh, Slate and Panoply's new podcast about college admissions. It's on iTunes. It's in Stitcher or at slate.com slash getting in. Okay, I have been in New York to go to the U.S. Open. I wanted to see Serena Williams do something that I have never seen before, that nobody has seen before. And we saw that, losing saw to uh, <laughs> a number 43-ranked Italian named Roberta Vinci. Um, it was great to see Serena get the acclaim that she deserved after a brilliant uh, career, which she's won 21 Grand Slam titles. She came into the Open having won four straight majors, but we don't really care about that because one of them was in 2014, which is a year that's been consigned to the past, like Stefan's books. Um, she was trying to accomplish what had last been achieved by Steffi Graf in 1988, which is the calendar Grand Slam. She was on Billboard. She was in commercials. She was the subject of a magazine cover story written by a poet. But on the court, the hardest part of winning 28 straight Grand Slam matches in a year is that you have to win 28 straight Grand Slam matches in a year. 27th match, Roberta Vinci, the Italian, came into the U.S. Open having won a single Grand Slam match all year. She played the match of her life, told the crowd afterwards that it was the greatest moment of her life, winning 2-6, 6-4, 6-4 in the stadium. This was one of the more amazing um, sporting events that I've ever seen. Uh, Stefan, how did it play on television? What did you think of, of the match on Friday? Well, two things first, Josh. Yeah. R- Roberta Vinci did win six Grand Slam matches this year. Before she so, played Serena. Some of them were in doubles? No. She won five at the U.S. Open. Ah! Good point. Elsewhere. Ah. Good point. Good point. And one elsewhere. Good point. I can't remember what the second point that I was going to make was. Uh, <laughs> you were I, overwhelmed you by didicism. You should just drop the mic. Yes. You're done with the podcast. You've proved your point. <laughs> I don't need to make good points. I just need to correct yeah. Josh. Exactly. I actually didn't watch the match because I was coaching girls soccer. I did watch it, however, thanks to the three-hour rain delay before the men's final on Sunday. ESPN replayed the Serena match, and I watched. And after having digested so much brilliant writing about the match, including Josh Levine's wonderful post-game analysis, which included, as I told Josh, lots of shots. Josh took care of all the shots, many shots. What really struck me was how sort of out of it Serena looked, how... Basically, like she was about to cry the whole time. Even when she was pumping herself up, it felt manufactured. It, it seemed like she was just overcome with sadness 
before she had, you know, before the match was even in true jeopardy, given how she had come back from losing a set numerous times in the previous and Grand Slams and during this U.S. Open. But was that an effect of you knowing the outcome? I mean, Josh, when you were watching it in real time, were you saying something's off with her? Okay, here's where she turns it around. Well, that's the thing is that she had done this so many times at the French Open, she would look terrible and then come back and win the third set. She'd done it at Wimbledon. She'd done it at the U.S. Open, too. And so there was a certain inevitability to her comeback that kind of, you know, nobody, uh, I mentioned this, I think we were talking about uh, Wimbledon, that Chris Everett said that no all-time great player looks worse than Serena does at her worst, and nobody looks better at her best. And so almost as bad as, like, she abases herself on the tennis court, it's just part of this kind of process of her you know, digging as big a hole as she can and then leaping out of it. And so it seemed normal to me. Well, the two things I would say is, one, I don't like the phrase, the calendar year Grand Slam. To me, this is like French champagne. It is by that's what a Grand Slam is. And that's what champagne is. Um, I know that Serena won four in a row, but it's just not a Grand Slam. Not that it matters. Like, it's not like the Grand Slam is, is, is a thing other than a construction. Construct it however you want. Fine. One strain of analysis was talking about Essentially how she got screwed by the fact that women uh, don't go to five. And what about the fact that she benefited from that? I mean, not only did she benefit, I don't know, benefited, but if you looked at the uh, trail of competitors she faced, they weren't top-ranked opponents. And they were talking about this when Djokovic won his final. They were comparing Serena to Djokovic, always with the caveats, of course, of course, not to put down Serena, not to put down Serena. But yes, she played much lesser competition. But in this match, it was written a number of times, you know, because she doesn't get to play five. She didn't have the chance to dig herself out of the hole. You know, but this to me is the analysis of the team that's down seven to four and does get a bad call and gets a third out. But even if they got the men on base, you know, who's to say she wasn't playing well and who's to say she should say well, she would have won and who's to say that, you know, having only to win two out of three uh, hasn't benefited her. She, in the past. she did know the rules before the match started. Yes, it's not like after that. three sets, they're what? like, we told you before that you were going to get five, but never mind. We're we're call it here. That's it. Champion. So, Stefan, in contrast to Serena's uh, melancholy, I want to play a clip of Roberta Vinci's on-court interview, which was so uh, charming and delightful. And this was the most charming and delightful part. When you woke up this morning, what gave you the belief that this moment was possible? No. (laughs) Really? (laughs) It's true. No, when I wake up, I say, okay, I have a semifinal today. Try to enjoy. Don't think about Serena. Play. Enjoy. Enjoy. But uh, I didn't expect that I won. <laughs> Just kind of uh, shoving the knife in uh, to Serena there, Stefan. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> she recognized that she had absolutely no realistic chance of beating Serena Williams, which was pretty much accurate. I'm sure that professional athletes wake up when they have to play someone who is so clearly out of their their league in terms of accomplishments and general ability that they're they're realistic no one is unrealistic when it comes to being a pro athlete you know how good you are no one is more critical and self-aware than athletes they know their skills versus other people's skills and the idea of just how shocking this was to her and to everybody else was confirmed by the way the match went i mean when vinci was returning serena's serves that were coming in for serves at 118 or 120 23 miles per hour, which was faster, faster than Djokovic and Federer were serving at times. Serena looked dumbfounded, and Vinci sort of confirmed that she was dumbfounded the whole way through. Yeah, I was kidding about the uh, the shoving the knife end. But the thing that I found so hilarious about that interview is that Tom Rinaldi, who did some of these along the way, is just so kind of suffused with cliche. Oh, that, God. But oh, the, the premise of his question was that, of course, she had the belief because that's what all You're athletes say. Is, the belief. Oh, I believe, you know. <laughs> that's what everyone just, who has <laughs> ever posed a cliched question to responded as they need to respond. <laughs> but yeah. he just wouldn't allow her, wouldn't allow for the possibility that maybe she didn't think she would win. And Vinci... Um, kind of greatly and amazingly said, no, Tom Rinaldi, cliche man. Of course, I didn't think I I could win. Her surname does mean I conquered. So in general, Serena is not 
bothered by players like Roberta Vinci, ones that slice, ones that don't hit with much pace. You know, Vinci's sometimes doubles partner, Sarah Arani, who is, you know, one of the softest hitters on tour. And there was a match, I think it was in the French Open, where it just looked sad, like how easily Serena was battering the ball against her. And Arani could do absolutely nothing. Um, But in this case, with the pressure on her, and Serena denied that there was any pressure, but that was just belied by what you saw in the court. You do not want to play someone who makes you do absolutely everything yourself. Like playing someone like Madison Keys, where she's bashing the ball and you just don't have time to think. Serena is just a better player and she just kind of can act and use her superior physical skills in the moment to beat her. But this is sort of like more like golf where golf is such a mental game because you're just kind of standing there and thinking about the next shot. Serena's just watching the ball float slowly over the net. Everything's coming back, and she has to hit a winner. She has to affirmatively win the point. Mm -hmm. And when you have to provide all your own pace and you have to think through every point, it's just not a good situation to be in with so much pressure. It's like how those powerhouse Yankee lineups of the late 90s were susceptible to the soft tossing lefty, or maybe in the tennis context, we could say Vinci Bobby Rigster a little bit. (laughs) I think so. I mean, we should give credit to fellow Italian Flavia Panetta who beat Vinci oh, yeah. in the final. We should give credit to the one then, who actually won the U.S. Open. Then continuing the trend of amazing on-court interviews, announced her retirement afterwards, basically saying, I've lost my whole career. I finally won and got to the pinnacle. Eh, I've had a good life. I've had a good career. I'm done. I'm going to go hang out with my fiance, Fabio Fanini, who's wearing jean shorts in the, in the player box. Uh, it was awesome. All right. On the men's side, Novak Djokovic uh, played Federer for the 42nd time. As Mike said, um, Djokovic beat Federer, and he also beat the aggressively, at least for tennis, pro-Federer crowd. Second U.S. Open of Djokovic's career. The score was 6-4, 5-7, 6-4, 6-4. It was Djokovic's third major title of the year, matching Serena Williams's total, his 10th major overall compared to Federer's 17, and Nadal's 14. In the press conference afterwards, Stefan, we were talking about comparing Djokovic to Serena. Djokovic said very generously, but also accurately, that he didn't think if he was going for his fourth in a row, like Serena was, that he would have won that match. Um, Djokovic was just incredible with his resolve, saving 19 of 23 breakpoints. The crowd just really was just ridiculously. I mean, I wrote on Twitter that I was waiting for Roger Federer to perform a mass wedding. I mean, it was like more a religious revival than a sporting event. And it was just kind of showed Djokovic what makes him so great that he was able to overcome the player and the fans. I've been very impressed with Federer's reinvention for two reasons, that he's done it and the actual game he plays now is really interesting. Like, he runs to the net a lot, and he does things that are very unfederary. And, uh, it's kind I, of, like, subversive. Yes. What's the acronym he uses? Saber. Sneak attack <laughs> Saber. by Roger. Does that work in French? Is that is that an American, an English-only acronym? Saber metrics. Yeah. I like the Saber. I think that Djokovic was clearly a better player and a better player late, and then you saw Federer's forehand just leaving him at times and Djokovic never had any flaw in his game and the thing I'd say about the crowd being on his side it was true but the crowd was I mean the crowd roared for Djokovic too it just roared a lot more for Federer and I guess what maybe it could have gotten to Djokovic is he would have an unforced error and it would roar which sounds like a jeering but McEnroe noted that he's never actually been cheered in a final, except maybe against Vavrinka, the only final that he lost, because Federer was more popular than him when Federer was winning finals, and Nadal's always been more popular than him, and, you know, when he plays, especially where he plays Murray and Wimbledon or whatever. So maybe, I don't know, don't people love Djokovic? I, who am not the huge tennis fan, find him the most entertaining of the champions. They do. People love Djokovic. They just don't love him as much as um, who he's playing against. But why would they Do they love Federer more because of his past accomplishments and he's old? It seems to me that I remember when Federer was going on his run of U.S. Open wins, was it 2004 to 2008, he was seen as boring. And so they've just come around because everyone has a revival. I think it's partly a little bit of of appreciation, nostalgic appreciation for um, how aesthetic he is and how beautiful he is. It's sort of been drummed into our heads that we should appreciate Roger Federer. Um, because he is so graceful, because he's got that lovely hair, because he wears electric salmon 
piping on his Nike shirts. Um, and, and I think that I do think that it sort of suffuses our impression of him and it makes us want to root for him. I mean, he is, you know, he's uh, anodyne is a word we've used on this podcast. He's not the most, you know, charismatic. He's very put together. He's very Swiss. Um, and yet he is eminently likable, I think, because he plays so beautifully. And the fact that he's 34 now and everybody kind of wants him to win one more major, mm-hmm. I mean, makes people want to root for him. Um, you know, it was a very New York crowd. I don't know. Federer seemed, I, I think it kind of backfired on Federer. I mean, Djokovic did seem to be taunting the crowd at times. Um, the crowd was was cheering when he'd dump a first serve into the net. They were cheering his errors. Um, that can't be good for his opponent. Well, I would say a couple things. Or maybe it's irrelevant. I, I would say I would say a couple things being there. It's just the kind of decorum that's expected of a tennis crowd is different than in most other sports, especially mano a mano sports. Again, I bring up golf, but you know, tennis is more aggressive. There's more action and you can understand a crowd roaring and mm-hmm. wanting to cheer. But as a fan, you're kind of, you're kind of indoctrinated into the mores of the game, the etiquette of it. And so when there is a Djokovic first serve into the net, the Federer acolytes, the loudest and most aggressive among them, cheer, and the chair umpire goes, quiet, please. Everyone in the crowd goes, shh, shh. And it's sort of like people replying all to an email chain, telling other people to reply all. Everyone just starts shushing, and it's just the cacophony of shushing. But And I would put myself in this group, and you're asking Mike, about why people root for Federer. There is something about the aesthetic of it, something about him playing a game that seems from a different time and using it to great success in this modern era. So you're sort of like rooting for him both to turn back time because he's old and because of the way he plays. And there is something kind of beautiful about it. Yeah, and we can mock the Federer think piece as Slate did wonderfully last week. But And these long rallies, it's sort of like beautiful opera music, mermaid, sunning herself on a rock, backhand, forehand, and then like gigantic fart noise as (laughs) as Federer shanks the ball into the stands. There's just something like wishful and hopeful about it. And with like if you're at a Mets game or something, the crowd loves the team but also hates the team. Like when the team doesn't do, you know, stuff well – Either they actively boo or they're like, oh, my God. It's like they're doing it again. But with Federer, it's just like it's like a more primal like need Mm -hmm. to see him win. And it's more of, I think, an identification. And it's not you, you think of him as sort of this like flawless paragon or idol or something. And that's why, you know, David Foster Wallace called it Federer as religious experience. So you're not like, oh. Again, like, why is he doing it? You're mad, you're mad at him for, like, not living up to, like, his own beauty and perfection. It's just different than, like, a sports relationship usually is. By the way, you mentioned the chair umpire. She had a great game. She Unbelievable. was right all the time. Unbelievable. I think was she, she the was only awesome. female? She, she was the first, the first to, woman to umpire a men's final. She is Hawkeye. <laughs> yeah, she overruled the lines people for some reason were just like, you know what? Uh, we're just not going to call anything today. And she was doing my, my she Greek was uh, grandfather right accent, too. <laughs> She's Greek. Eva Azdaraki, more champion, Grand Slam champion. This week, our sponsor is DraftKings. You can play to win a million dollars this week and every week. This football season at DraftKings.com. With one week fantasy at DraftKings, you can play when you want with the team you want. Just pick your contest, pick your team, and pick up your winnings. This is not fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. So hurry to DraftKings.com now. Use the promo code HANGUP to play for free for a shot at $1 million in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Enter HANGUP and you can get free entry now. That's only at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. For a time on Sunday afternoon, the top four stories on ESPN.com were all about the NFL, the start of the NFL season. Jets rookie carted off on spinal board. Wide receiver with a busted hamstring, linebacker with a concussion, and Cleveland quarterback Josh McCown suffering his own concussion and giving way to backup Johnny Manziel. Top NFL stories. 
In the Browns' 31-10 loss to the New York Jets, Johnny Football threw for 182 yards and his first NFL touchdown, but he also threw an interception and fumbled twice, an uneven performance that didn't do much to convince anyone that his scrambling in the backyard like a faster but more erratic, less pre-apic, and jeans-wearing Brett Favre is going to work in the NFL. In Tampa, the top two players selected in this year's draft, Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota, faced off in a game between the Tennessee Titans of Mariota and Winston's Tampa Bay Bucks. The Titans and Mariota won 42-14. Mariota threw four touchdowns in the first half. Winston threw an interception that was returned for a touchdown on his first NFL pass. Small sample size, yada, yada, yada. But it's now clear that Mariota is awesome and Winston is terrible. Just like we knew that Robert Griffin III was going to make the Hall of Fame his rookie season for Washington. The larger issue that we're going to talk about here is one raised by Kevin Clark in the Wall Street Journal in a story with the premise that the NFL is in the midst of a quarterback crisis. Players like Manziel, Mariota, and Winston come into the league without the tools needed to operate a pro offense. Mike, did you buy the premise of this story? Well... Does Marcus Mariota, although his beating of Jameis Winston, not only a referendum on who will be the better quarterback forever, but the better person. Um, it doesn't say a lot about Mariota, sure. It does say a lot about the Tampa defense. I think it does. I think it does also. I did not buy the premise of the story. It's one of those things where there are so many factors that it's hard to get the uh, scientific consensus. It seems to me that... Just as important as the ability to show that you've dominated in a similar scheme in college and that would be the thing that translates to the pros, there's also a virtue to why wouldn't we say, you know what, he showed he can execute the system that the coach tells him to execute. That would seem to be a trait that one would want. or sure. to Right. Or to say that he's the kind of guy that wouldn't it be great if he had pro level talent around him, but didn't. Right. Therefore, given better an upgrade in talent in the line of scrimmage or an upgrade in talent in the complexity of an offense, which it seems like he could handle. Maybe he'll flourish more. I don't know. As much as every conclusion of that article, I think that the opposite conclusion could have been pretty uh, practically drawn. I think we're living in an era of great quarterbacks because they've played pro style football since they were 10. And in fact, at the youngest levels, they've been playing pro style football a little bit longer than the pros have. Like some of these guys have been playing the style (laughs) that their pro teams are playing longer than their pro teams have been playing them. Yeah. So to explicate the premise a little bit more, um, and it's well reported, Kevin Clark talked to a bunch of NFL coaches and personnel managers who are on the record basically saying quarterbacks who can think at the line of scrimmage are dying out and, you know, Browns coach Mike Patton said they're going to be on the endangered species list. Rams general manager Les Snead says it's doomsday if we don't adapt and evolve. And the idea is that in college with hurry-up offenses, you just get to the line of scrimmage. You don't do anything sophisticated. You don't read what the defense is doing. The coach from the sidelines basically tells you what to do. Then when you get to the NFL, it's completely different. The schemes the defenses run are more exotic and harder to diagnose. The NFL is a quarterback dependent league, a passing dependent league, but in an entirely different way because these hurry up offenses aren't run. And so it's dependent on the quarterback's intellect and his ability to diagnose what's going on. And Stefan, the argument here is basically that quarterbacks have never had to think in college and these coaches. So therefore, they don't have the ability to think ever. Well, coaches, the coaches coaches are basically saying we ask them questions about like fronts and coverages in these meetings and we just get blank stares. They have no idea what's going on. All all that says to me is that college football is becoming more different from professional football. They might as well have asked them about, you know, how to play rugby. They wouldn't have answers to those questions either. The arrogance is, is on the NFL's part that we expect college to be a preparatory program for playing in the NFL or the idea that we're playing accept the limitations of what college football coaches want to do today and adapt when these athletes get to our team. Why should a quarterback come into the NFL prepared to run an NFL offense if college football isn't the NFL? I mean, that's what struck me as weird in this piece. Like, oh, nobody's doing what we're doing. Therefore, they're all idiots. Also, the other huge thing that might strike you as weird is that you put the you set the premise up. These quarterbacks can't think. And that's why defense are ahead of offenses and quarterbacks aren't throwing the ball well. And there are no passing records being set. 
wait a minute. It's an error of explosive passing records. How could right. you say there's a problem? Well, a lot of the, as you were saying, though, a lot of the quarterbacks who are setting these passing records, if not all of them, came from an era before the hurry-up offense in college. So it doesn't entirely deflate the premise, I don't think. But what was interesting to me are the kind of two economic issues at play here. Number Mm -hmm. one is the NFL has long, I think, believed, or if not professed it out loud, at least it's implicit in their actions, that they just don't need to set up a minor league system because college football does it for free and develops these players, and they have to stay in college for three years by rule. And so um, you can see how good they are. You have all this tape of them. And yet now they're complaining because basically the NFL doesn't have a minor league system where they you know, can't force the players to develop the way the NFL wants them to. So just like suck it up pay the players, you like solve two problems, the more fundamental problem of players not being paid in college and the more, you know, quotidian one of players allegedly not being prepared to play in the NFL. But the second one is the the second issue here is the idea that the Seahawks and Russell Wilson being paid on a rookie contract, you're at an enormous advantage if you can get a quarterback coming up in his first four years on a rookie deal who's good at playing football because quarterbacks are paid so much money. Russell Wilson's now getting like $20 million a year. And so if you can pay somebody like a few hundred thousand a year, spread that money out around the rest of your team, then you have a great chance to win the Super Bowl. And so it is obviously good for NFL teams to have quarterbacks who can come in and play right away. And so that, I think, is why they're saying it's a crisis that we can't, you know, play these horribly underpaid guys, that they're only good once they're paid, you know, the amount that they should be making on the open market. <laughs> Probably less, right? yeah. Another flaw of the article, and it's not just the article, it's the mindset. It's the grumpy... I, th- I sense the coaches were saying kids these days. And w- mm-hmm. Once you get to be a 12-year veteran, then maybe a coach would give you respect. But another problem with the kids these days argument is that there was a premise that, you know, in the pros, the coach who calls all the shots ain't going to work. Except doesn't Chip Kelly counter, isn't that a countervailing force? I mean, Nick Foles, I think all the quarterback evaluators looked at his amazing season with, what was it, three interceptions, which the statisticians or the people who just looked at that would say, what a great season. But the evaluators say Nick Foles sucks. That's And, and Chip Kelly was right to get rid of him. And yet with non-thinking Nick Foles, with robot Nick Foles, they had this amazing season. And with Marcus Mariota, I don't know how much he's thinking, but no one would say he's Peyton Manning yet. You know, he had a great game. He outplayed running the system that he was supposed to play. So I think that there are... He outplayed genius NFL coach Levy Smith. Yes, and even Russell Wilson, the poster child for the great guy who pays dividends early, it's not that he came in with the ability to think outthink defense in the line of scrimmage. He essentially played the offense he was handed. So there is the be Peyton Manning, go to the line, change your scheme, play a chess match way of thinking it. But I still think it's viable to have a genius coach calling 90% of the shots and have that be a path to success. Russell Wilson, by the way, who redshirted as a freshman in college and played a graduate year at a different university where he was able to prepare effectively for being drafted and playing in the National Football League, right? So free year of training for Russell Wilson. And I think that we're all, we're all sort of saying the same thing, which is this is really an NFL problem. And Mike Pettin, the coach of the Cleveland Browns, is quoted in this piece as saying, oh, my God, it might end up being like baseball, where it's going to take three or four or five years to get a player ready to play at this level. Well, yeah. Why should there be this expectation that a 21-year-old is ready to run an NFL offense as soon as he enters the league? I just want to make it clear. I think this piece by Kevin Clark, who I, it's a good piece. Uh, I think that he does an amazing job finding these kinds of stories. And the piece was great in yeah. that it reflected the prevailing the wisdom the in the NFL. Right, right. We don't know the It was really good journalism. It, is, yeah, yeah, it was good journalism. Right. right. We're not um, disagreeing with Clark. We're disagreeing with the coaches, I right. guess. Yeah. But, Stefan, maybe we can end up, and I'll go to you first with this, the question raised by Clark and also by Barry Pachesky in a follow-up on Deadspin is can there be a kind of offense that college quarterbacks can come in, NFL teams can exploit them during their you know lesser paid early years, and teams can win? Is this a failure of thinking here? The Washington NFL team was successful with RG3 before he was hurt his first year. Um, Russell mm-hmm. Wilson was playing some 
Zone Reed. Chip Kelly is changing things in Philadelphia. And so is this idea, you know, is this article reflective of coaches just having a lack of imagination? Or is there something to the fact that you just can't do the same thing in college, the hurry up kind it's of not like they're on. It's not like they're unaware of this conundrum. Uh, Cleveland's GM, Ray Farmer, is quoted in the story as saying, whoever cracks the code first is going to succeed. Whoever can figure out what the offensive scheme is that can take advantage of a quarterback's existing abilities when he comes into the league is the one that's going to gain the advantage. So it is about trying to to find the inefficiency in NFL defenses or in NFL team structures and apply it. And, you know, I think that Chip Kelly has done that to some degree, right? So who can build on that or who can take a particular quarterback, maybe it's Marcus Mariota, and find the offense that is designed to utilize the abilities he has right now while building toward the future. That was the idea with RG3, wasn't it? To do what he does best in his first years in Washington. Shanahan, Mike Shanahan, the head coach, certainly had that intent, but then develop him into a more versatile quarterback who could also stay in the pocket and throw down the line. Yeah, the inefficiency in the NFL with respect to managing the salary cap is the idea, and it's not just an idea, I think it's been pretty clearly established that to be successful in the league for a long term, you have to have a quarterback who makes a lot of money. And so if you can have a quarterback who can lead you to success and then be replaced by another quarterback who can lead you to success, then you can spend money on other positions just like the Seahawks did. And if you can do that in a self-perpetuating way, then you've certainly be at an advantage over other teams. Just Favre Rogers, Geno Smith, Martin Fitzpatrick coach. <laughs> <laughs> great, great place to end. <laughs> Civil war in Syria has killed an estimated 250,000 people, with Bashar al-Assad's government targeting civilians with bombs and chemical weapons. According to data from the United Nations, roughly half of the Syrian population has been forced from their homes by the Syrian government or ISIS, with 6.5 million people displaced within Syria's borders and 4.1 million displaced abroad. Syrian migrants have taken desperate, dangerous journeys to escape the country, with many landing on the Greek island of Chios, where some of Stefan's cousins have helped take them in. Right, Stefan? Another group that has taken it upon themselves to help refugees during this crisis is European soccer fans. As James Montague writes in the New York Times, major clubs like Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain, Porto, and Roma have donated money to help migrants uh, doing things ranging from giving direct aid to setting up training camps for migrants, giving out uh, tickets, and just doing a whole wide range of things. What's more fascinating is that fan groups, like the one for the Hamburg Germany team FC Pauli, have given food and clothing and legal advice. In his piece, Montague describes a banner with the words refugees welcome being unfurled in the stadium. Um, Stefan, we've talked before on this podcast about rampant racism in European soccer and how that's manifested in, you know, horrifying, banana-throwing ways. So how can these things coexist? How can fan groups, you know, that we associate with racism and, and other negative things also kind of widely across Europe, you know, express the attitude that refugees are welcome? And we're not only going to hold a sign, we're going to actively help these folks, um, you know, assimilate into Europe. It's remarkable. And I think it does say something about the majority of fans of, of European soccer, that it's not just the fringe ultras, the racists, and you know many of whom are in Eastern Europe, and a lot of the support here is in Western Europe. Um, there is a distinction to be made. You think about Hungary, the government not being supportive of, at all in bringing refugees into the country. So I think what you're seeing is you know humanitarian-minded human beings, people who find this to be something that their clubs should do. And what's interesting to me is what is the, the, the thinking that a soccer team should have this humanitarian responsibility? And I think that's what is distinctive here. It's that there is an underlying belief at many soccer clubs around the world that there is something larger than winning and losing than success on the pitch 
that is inherent to these teams. And they're not just teams. They are clubs, and that's how they're perceived. And I think that's something that, that's worthy of being analyzed. And we're talking about the big clubs, the huge clubs, Bayern Munich and Arsenal among them, clubs that are reaching out. And they have so much money. These are money-making machines. Mm-hmm. And not only does it not hurt their bottom line, it is the refugee crisis is a lot of things, and it's a deep challenge, but it's also one aspect of it is simple humanitarian relief. So them putting themselves forward is just like after Katrina, NFL teams wanting to help. There was, by the way, and I use the word refugee crisis then too, a little bit different on the scale for sure. And also we talk about transnational boundaries. And one of the reasons they do it is why all sports clubs, I guess businesses, but definitely sports clubs where they cover themselves in the idea of that we're more than the sport, why they do it, which is, you know, it's an easy feel good way to extend the brand and to make themselves feel, you know, it's doing a good thing, but also to make their fans, you know, feel connected to the club in a way that's uh, beyond the sport itself. It would surprise me if they didn't take this tact and it doesn't and it also would surprise me if it weren't true that small there'd be ugly incidents on a smaller scale which are often where we see the ugliest incidents of international soccer you know those banana throwing incidents i guess it was via real which is a pretty big spanish team but it's not real it happened in italy a bunch too i don't know i, I think that's yeah. a little bit cynical mike i do think that that clubs and fans do make a distinction between sort of political expression and social responsibility humanitarianism that's well when said. you look at I the pictures of the refugees uh, rory smith of the Times of London wrote this in a, in a column that was posted on EF, ESPN FC. You look at the pictures of the refugees, you can't tell if they're Afghani or Syrian, Christian or Muslim. They're wearing soccer jerseys. You know, you see Man U and Real and Barca and Bayern jerseys in there. So I think for the sport large, and you think of FIFA and Sepp Blatter and their, their blather about how soccer has this larger role in the world. But, you know, historically, soccer ha- does have political roots and it does have sort of neighborhood roots and social roots and working class roots. And I think those things are baked in to the identities of soccer fans in some parts of the world. Yeah. And even if you would argue that this is a, should be a simple decision, that it's a purely humanitarian exercise. In Europe and, you know, in the United States, you know, what people say about Syrian refugees is a political statement. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you have countries like in Iceland where they capped the number of refugees and, you know, Icelandic people decided, well, we're going to take refugees and ourselves, the government, be damned. But I just can't imagine an NFL team even, you know, with Katrina, it's not so much a political statement. Like, you know, Dan Snyder didn't stand up and say, like, George Bush doesn't care about black people. Right. Just giving money to say, you know, we're going to help these people. There's nothing political about donating money to the Red Cross or something after Hurricane Katrina. This is explicitly political, which I just don't think, you know, in the like with pink washing, you know, with the NFL and breast mm-hmm. cancer, you get the sense that they're just doing it, you know, it's not bad to give money for breast cancer awareness. And I would, you know, I'd hate to be so cynical as to think that, like, that I wouldn't want them to do it. But it's clear that they're doing it to, you know, for well, branding. Let's, draw, and let's for, draw a contrast here. Let's or just make a parallel. Here's what Karl Heinz Rummenigge, the former German star on the national team, who's now the chairman of Bayern Munich, said, quote, we at FC Bayern consider it our sociopolitical responsibility to help displaced and needy children, women and men, supporting and assisting them in Germany. Can you imagine attaching the name of an NFL owner to that statement and subbing out the name of the Washington football team or the Tennessee Titans and subbing out displaced Syrians with displaced Mexicans. I can't imagine that happening. I mean, we are so, so overwhelmed by political division here that this would take on overtones that, owners would fear and team PR people would fear 
would alienate some percentage of the fan base. Yes, but we're imposing our politics on them. We couldn't understand it because in America, we're much more anti-immigrant than they are in especially Germany. And the reason that Germany was taking the most immigrants is because as a political matter, it's much less controversial. I mean, now it's come to a crisis point. But, you know, as recently as early 2015, this is a poll done in April 2015 by Pew, and they asked people in different countries to respond to the question, immigrants today are a burden to our country because they take our jobs and social benefits. So in Italy, 69% agreed. France, then Poland, then Spain. The lowest was Germany. Only 29% agreed with that. So in Germany, it's much less politically controversial to be open to immigrants. It's changing now. There's such a flood of immigrants. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's like the controversy of... You know what? It's like it's like the NFL teams taking essentially pro-gay stances. Uh, the the CEOs of teams or NBA teams after um, Michael Sam NFL teams and maybe an, an observer in a more Catholic country like Portugal would say, wow, I would never think that they'd be doing that in, uh, is it Syria, Prima League, whatever the top league in uh, Portugal is. So yes, in Germany, they're just more pro-immigrant or have been up to this point. This is like a special episode of The Gist on Hang Up and Listen. This is great. <laughs> um, no, you mean I'm I, not letting anyone else talk? Well, no, 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 no. Um, it's, this is uh, an interesting conversation. I think it's important for the host of the podcast to tell listeners that the conversation is interesting. That's just, <laughs> yeah. that's, I don't do that enough. Fascinating. Well, let, look at, at the, the sort of state of professional sports in America. Mike, you alluded to the fact that a lot of the teams in the clubs in Europe that are doing this have deep pockets. A lot yeah. of them don't, too. The team that Josh mentioned in his intro that James Montague um, highlighted in his New York Times story was St. Pauli. And one of the team officials says, we don't have money. We're not a money winning. We're not a money making team. We're in the second tier of, of German soccer. But when you look at American sports, I mean, what U.S. teams still have deep social ties to the community? Green Bay, maybe? They are the community, yeah. They are the community. I mean, yeah. historically, what teams in America who had that kind of a connection? I mean, you have to go back decades, and what's typically happened with those teams? Their owners have moved them to places where they can succeed better economically. Well, what what this makes me think about is... Just what a lingua franca soccer is. I mean, I, I listened to the interview that your wife, Melissa Block, did on NPR with your cousin, Stefan, and just talking about these refugees being washed ashore and just being so discombobulated and having no idea even where they were. And people were trying to provide them with food and water, but just, you know, not, like I said, not even knowing where they were, not knowing what to do. And one thing that people around the world do know is soccer. And so just the simple kind of human kindness of inviting people to a game, giving them a soccer jersey can make you feel welcome in this place where you don't know anyone and don't, you know, have any idea of what else to do. But, um, you know, we just want to be careful not to idealize European sports and European soccer in particular. We've talked about some of the issues before, but there's also the point that, these big clubs that we mentioned, they, you know, recruit players from Africa, from impoverished parts of the world, most of whom don't make it. And they just end up getting either stuck in Europe with nothing to do or just, you know, can end up in kind of worse places than where they started. It's not like, you know, baseball in the Caribbean is any better necessarily. But um, these places have kind of complicated connections with, with migrancy. Yes. And also, if a club were to put out the message that we're not open to migrants, we're not open to people from other lands, I think they'd get much less good players. In fact, the great German national team, if they weren't pro-immigrant, they would not be the great German national team. Now it is time for After Balls and in James Montague's piece about... German soccer clubs and migrants. He focuses on the team FC St. Pauli. He writes that the club's roots are in the working-class St. Pauli neighborhood, known for the Reeperbahn, Hamburg's red-light district. It was there that the Beatles honed their trade in the early 1960s and where social activism and radical politics often bleed into the stands of the Millern Tor. Reeperbahn is just a great, great word. Yeah. It's like 
a highway where you can go as fast as you can murdering people. If you don't and, fear the Reaper bond. <laughs> and a red light district in <laughs> Hamburg. Mike, what is your Reaper bond? Well, I was at the Turkish Bazaar, and I got my son a Galatasaray jersey. And man, did I do a good job. I haggled the guy down from 20 Turkish lira to... I feel like one out of every 10 of your afterballs is about haggling for soccer jerseys. <laughs> I, I haggled him down to 15 Turkish lira. And, oh, was it a haggling session? And I love when the stakes are that low to buy a knockoff soccer jersey for, with the exchange rate, $5. By the way, Turkish lira has plunged 30% this year. Things are free in Turkey. Go. And then I turn can you, the corner. Wait, can we reenact the haggling sesh? Uh, how much is this? 20 lira. I give you 12. 12. 18. Get out of here. 12. Uh, 15. Deal. <laughs> there we go. It was that exciting. You are there. And then the guy gives me the patch, which he hasn't sewn onto the jersey. Turn the corner, and I find on the rack, no haggling necessary, streams of not only the same jersey, but with matching shorts for 10 lira. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's my haggling for me. I would like to inveigh against a particular NFL statistic, and I would like to foment a mass movement against this statistic. Now, we know that certain NFL statistics are dumb, the thousand-yard rusher, who cares? And we've internalized that other statistics, number of passing yards in a game, normally a function of being behind rather than excellence. But there is one statistic, really two statistics, that manner they trotted out. And oh, do they seem like they're so important. But you know what they are? They're half a statistic. And the statistic is third, and to even larger extent, fourth down efficiency, third down conversion rate. Because when they're telling you the third down conversion rate, they're telling you how often a team made a first down. They're not giving you another, I would say, gigantic piece of information, which is how long it was to make the first down. In what other circumstance? If I was just telling you, instead of the team's overall conversion rate. If I was telling you, and then on a crucial third down, they converted, wouldn't you say, how long was it? Was it a third and 12? Was it amazing because it was a third and 19? Of course you would. But when we just give third down conversion rates, we're talking about a graph where we only convey the x-axis or we're saying, hey, you should come to my house. Here's the address. How long do you think it'll take and then I'm supposed to give you an answer without knowing where you're coming from. We need both sets of information. There's some conversion rate statistics that are extremely misleading. Like I was watching the Washington NFL game and they mentioned that Washington was the worst in the league in fourth down conversion rates. And I said, that seems logical because probably terrible teams are behind and have to go for it on fourth down more often. So I kind of railed against citing that statistic. And yet, when I looked at the 2014 fourth down conversion rates, indeed, Washington was last. But second to last was Seattle. They're a pretty good team. They were only three of 19. You can, here are some of my suggestions for how to better convey conversion rate, okay? You could say any team had a 42% conversion rate with a mean distance of, and then how that compares to the league's mean distance. Or here's an even better statistic. Of the third downs they converted, the mean distance was 3.7 yards. Of the ones they didn't convert, the mean distance was 4.6 yards. And how that compares to the league. Or give me a stat with third downs of one. I want the third down conversion rates of third and one. Give me that stat. Or just here's a stat. Third down conversion rate of three yards or less, third down conversion rate of four yards or more. There's so many ways to do conversion rate. It's not hard. It doesn't become meaningful until halfway through the season, but it's not hard. But until we demand it, it's not going to happen. So if you see Brent Musburger, so if you see Dan Deardorff, if you see anyone who's actually doing NFL <laughs> games in 2015, John Lynch and Kevin Burkhart, tell them we want better third down conversion rate statistics. That's good. That's a good demand. I get sneak behind that by, demand. Sneak attack by Pesca. Sabpa. <laughs> we've got the we've got the acronym. Why was it a sneak attack? Federer. You know, everything comes out of Federer. Okay, okay. I went to the net with that one. Gotcha. All right, Stefan. What is your Reaper bond? A decade or so ago, an old golf tiff resurfaced involving <laughs> Ken Venturi. The nineteenth. You like that, huh? Yeah. Golf yes. tiff. Uh, I like the way Ken you said Ventura. it. <laughs> An old golf tiff. 
Ken Venturi, the 1964 U.S. Open champion and longtime CBS commenter, and Arnold Palmer, who doesn't need in a positive. In a memoir, Venturi basically accused Palmer of cheating on the final day of the 1958 Masters. The incident occurred on the par 3 12th hole. Palmer plugged half of his ball into the squishy turf beyond Ray's Creek. Under a local rule, he wanted relief, a free drop. A U.S. Golf Association official denied Palmer's request. Palmer disagreed with the ruling. He played the first ball for a five. Then he went back, took his drop, chipped on and putted in for a par three. The disagreement with Venturi was over whether Palmer announced that he was playing a second ball before he played the plugged one or after taking the five. Venturi said it was after. Arnold said it was before. In any case, Arnold's appeal was upheld, and he went on to win the Masters by a single stroke. Venturi complained about what Palmer did privately for 50 years and then publicly. I tell this story because it plays a role, a small one factually, but a large one thematically, in Michael Bamberger's terrific new book, Men in Green, which I just read. Full disclosure, Bamberger, who writes about golf for Sports Illustrated, is a friend. We overlapped in college. We're occasionally in touch. But I don't need a connection to rave Bamberger's SI stories and his several books about golf and not golf. I also recommend To the Linksland, about his caddying in Europe as a young man, and Wonderland, about a suburban Philly high school and its prom. His books are informed with the instincts and insight of a great reporter, but more so with soul and dignity and humanity. Bamberger has a light touch, but there are layers of meaning and emotion in his clean and careful prose. On the surface, Men in Green sounds like a manufactured memoir journey. Eating alone in a restaurant one night, Bamberger composes on a paper tablecloth two lists, Living Legends and Secret Legends, a front and back nine of each. He invites his friend Mike Donald, a tour journeyman who heartbreakingly runner-upped at the 1990 U.S. Open, and they road trip in search of Palmer and Venturi and Watson and Crenshaw and Nicholas and characters you've never or only maybe heard of. A caddy nicknamed Golf Ball, a cup of coffee pro that Michael caddied for once as a teenager, the women's tour great Mickey Wright. It's the boys of summer in Sanzibelt slacks. But the notion that this book is a contrivance vanishes quickly. There's admiration in the visits to the golf world, people who shape Bamberger's life, but no hero worship. Mysteries are entertained and then unraveled. Betrayals are recounted. Lies are exposed. Regrets are aired candidly and kind of remarkably. Palmer confides that he would have won four more majors and he ticks them off had he not won one, the U.S. Open in 1960. Arnold says he lost his edge after that. Arnold Palmer lost his edge. Reporters recounting of careers in a sport usually aren't very interesting. Men in Green is because Bamberger has earned his credibility inside and outside the ropes. He knows golf's realities and truly believes in its codes and its symbolism. He loves the sport the way few reporters love the ones they cover. But he's a reporter, one who's refreshingly uncynical, but not for a minute uncritical. There's sentiment in Men in Green, but no sentimentality. There's nostalgia for the homey or less corporate era in golf, the 1970s, but no glossing over its human effects either. Back to Ken Venturi. Bamberger tracks down Connie Venturi, who isn't kind to her late ex-husband. He tracks down the USGA rulebook from 1958, which exonerates Arnold Palmer and the second ball at the Masters completely. So why did Venturi lie? Because Arnold won and became Arnold Palmer. Quote, he stole the life that should have been Ken's, Michael writes, and Ken was not going to forgive him for that. Not ever. Josh, what's your Reaper bond? So, Mike, you had an NFL demand. I have an NFL They're listening. If I know anything about the NFL, they're listening and they're they're hoping to help. (laughs) That's what I wanted to say because listeners of the show will know that I have a couple of hobby horses that I'm going to ride into the ground like Zippy Chippy, the horse that lost 100 races in a row. But no, another, another one is uh, baseball players without all of their <laughs> limbs. <laughs> That's one. Um, I was thinking more of the kind of hobby horses where I just complain about something and then nothing is done to change it. And, and so I just complain more. So uh, Under a Trump presidency. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so one of the ones is Vern Lundquist. <laughs> How he oh, makes really? 4,000 mistakes per game. You don't call, like Vern Lundquist, call, Josh? I like Vern Lundquist. He, he just makes lots of mistakes. And every time I, I rail on him for making mistakes, they just keep having him back. Keep doing the SEC football games on CBS. The dead horse just uh, continues to parade through Starkville and Baton Rouge. And Mike Pesca pats my nose and, and feeds me oats. So this one is maybe not a dead horse. 
This one's like a, the Terry Schiavo of horses. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I talked about this one in 2013. I talked about it in 2014. I didn't stutter. My yeah. voice was clear. Yeah. The correctness of my, my view was obvious to all, and yet the NFL did not change this rule. <laughs> it ruined a game in the first week of the 2015 NFL season to the astonishment of all. It never would have happened if someone would just listen to me. It's the name of the show. Listen. So, Cowboys-Giants. Yes, I knew that's where you were going. (laughs) Sunday night football, Giants up 23-20 late in the game. Everyone's fixating on how the Giants had the ball third and goal from the Cowboys' one-yard line. Less than two minutes to go. Cowboys have no timeouts remaining. All the Giants had to do was fall down. They could drain the clock down to about a minute to go. But no, Eli, why are you throwing the ball? Eli, the clock, the clock stops on an incomplete pass. Eli, why? Why, Eli? The clock stops. The Giants kick a field goal. Dallas drives the field, wins 27-26 with a few seconds to go. But what we need to talk about is the fact that the clock stopped two other times on that last Giants drive. And unlike that last play, neither one of those were the Giants' fault. So there's a second and three at the Dallas 33. 2.25 to go. Cowboys uh, on defense. Giants run the ball up the middle for two yards. Personal foul. Unnecessary roughness on Mincy for the Cowboys. 15-yard penalty. That's great for the Giants. 15 yards. I mean, how awesome is that? It's like a free 15 yards. It's a free 15 yards. It's 45 feet. And a first down. And the first down. Oh, oh, but Mike, Mm. the clock stops on a penalty by the defense. But wait a minute. Wouldn't that benefit the defense? Oh, but Mike. That seems unfair. (laughs) So on Twitter... People are like, the refs are applying this rule wrong. Obviously, the clock wouldn't stop at the end of a game when the defense committed a penalty because that would reward the defense. Like, everyone is saying, you know, blaming the referees. Oh, but no. The rule book states that in the last five minutes of a game, on a defensive penalty, even a declined defensive penalty, the clock stops. There's nothing the offense can do about it. And this came up again. The refs, unlike Kim Davis, just applying the rules. This came up again, third and 14 on the Dallas 20, third down conversion rate on plays of 14 and above in the fourth quarter of this game, 100%. Wow. So Eli Manning passes to Odell Beckham Jr., first down for the Cowboys. The clock keeps running. The game's basically, you know, clinched at this point. What is, oh, but no. Penalty on Dallas. Offside. It has the nothing to do. Jumped offside. It had n- the penalty was declined. It had nothing to do. It was a rookie do. mistake, too. They <laughs> excoriated the rookie for jumping yeah. offside. Nothing to do with the play. The, they declined the penalty because they got the first down with the pass to Beckham. But the first clock down. stops anyway on a declined penalty. And it was because of those two plays, Dallas got to save their timeouts. Dallas actually tried to call a timeout. Of course they did. After the personal foul penalty. The rest were they, like, no. They've been reading you, Twitter. They no, thought the clock obviously, stop. <laughs> your player committed unnecessary roughness. Obviously, that'll save you a timeout. We're going to give that back to you. <laughs> so Bill Barnwell wrote about, about all this on Grantland on Monday. And he says, you know, teams could theoretically take advantage of this. But it hasn't happened Yet, this was just an accident, and if it was so easy to take advantage of, then teams would have done it already. And in my previous afterballs, 2014 and 2013, I did focus on the theoretical ways in which you could just intentionally get penalties to save clock in a period of time in the game when time is more valuable than yardage or downs, and Bardwell kind of poo-pooed that. Maybe rightly so. But is it any better than when a team does this by accident? And just gets rewarded with the clock being stopped. And the fix is just so obvious. We talked about this with Hacka Jordan and the NBA. Like, yeah, you can fix that. But there are implications. Like, it's not easy to decide how to fix it. Maybe you should just make the guy make his free throws. I cannot think of another rule in sports where the rule is so transparently, obviously dumb that people... Everyone thinks the refs are applying it incorrectly. It can't be right. And where the solution is so easy. I got one. The Electoral College. Wait, (laughs) that's not sports shit. (laughs) The solution is so easy. All you have to do is let the offensive team decide whether they want the clock to run or not. Put it in their hands. Don't reward the defense for committing a penalty. Remember, my idea was the coaches would signal in that everyone on defense just take off their helmets. Yeah, you you can. That would be an easy one. It's fun to think of ways to stop the clock on purpose. We all we all love doing it. The Patriots but, have done that hundreds of times, right? <laughs> hundreds. So I've now talked about this in 2013. 
I've talked about it in 2014. We've seen the real-world effects of not listening to me. I've talked about it again in 2015. What do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? Fred Godelli. That's Fre- the answer. Next time mm-hmm. Fred is on. Yeah. Put it in Collinsworth ear. If, if you, you know, if Collinsworth was railing about this, it would be a conversation, national topic of conversation. So I was on the way back from the U.S. Open. I assume that Collinsworth was not railing against it. He didn't. It. No, he didn't mention it. He did say that if the end hadn't jumped, then Manning might not have been confident enough to try the throw. But that's all beside <laughs> the point. <laughs> all right. We'd love your feedback when we talked about it today. Tell all your friends about our various NFL demands. Go forth from this point. Yeah. Also tell them that Ken Venturi is a liar. That's important, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. We don't want to forget that after ball. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. If you're rating our podcast, if you're commenting on us, just please note that the NFL needs to change this rule. Tell the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast that the NFL needs to change this rule. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.